Let's pray. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for our health and for our strength, for our family and our friends and our community. We want to thank you for everything you've done for us and everything that you've given us, and that you are our shelter, our rock, our tower, our shield, our protection in this time of crisis that we're going through right now. You are the one who gives us peace that passes all understanding. And no matter what may come, um, life or death, whatever, nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Uh, and, and either way, we win. Whether we live or die, we win. We live to continue to serve you, and if we die, we go home to be with you. So, Lord, <clears throat> right now we ask in Yeshua's name that you would please uh, clear our hearts and clear our minds and help us to hone in and focus in on your word, to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds, that the lessons and the narrative that was taught thousands of years ago would be applicable to our lives today. And Father, we love you and we praise you. And, at, <clears throat> and as we understand your word better, uh, we under, uh, especially the what's called the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah. We understand the New Testament, the renewed covenant, the Brit Chadasha better, the, the, the words and, and times and, and actions of Yeshua. We, we understand those so much better when we understand uh, your word from Genesis to Malachi. So, Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Hey, Shalom, everyone. Good morning. Uh, glad you can join us. So please, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and I'm going to be reading from the Tree of Life version because uh, when I decided to do the Sunday school class, knowing that it's a Jewish document, knowing that uh, uh, it was written for the Jewish people and the Hebrew people long before the Gentiles came along, we want to try to study it and understand it in a Jewish Hebraic way. And there's no better way to do that than to go to the scriptures that express that so much more. And that is the Tree of Life version. It's a great Messianic version because uh, there were 70 scholars. Half of them were, were Jewish and the other half were Christian, and they worked together on this thing. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, begin with Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1. We're going to be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're going to ta be talking about Lot and his family. So it says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, while Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. Now, it's only speculative. We can't say for sure and be determinate in our opinion regarding uh, who these two angels were. But a lot of people believe that uh, the angel was uh, Gabriel because he's the messenger angel and he went to warn Lot. And uh, the other angel was Michael, the archangel, who is the prince of Israel. He's the defender of Israel. Uh, he's the warring angel. He could have been the one that actually, uh, you know, called down the fire and brimstone uh, and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as Gabriel was, was escorting uh, Lot and his family out. I, who knows? Uh, it's just speculative. I just wanted to throw that out there as one of the possible theories and the possible identification of who these two angels were. So what we really want to understand is uh, what was Lot doing sitting at the gate? It says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, so the sun was going down. It's getting dark. Once it gets dark, 
That's when all the bad guys start coming out because they want to do all their evil deeds in the dark where nobody can see them, where they're concealed, right? Uh, you don't do your wicked things in the daylight. Hey, that's why bars are dark because there's dark corners where you can make deals and do things you wouldn't do in broad daylight in front of the whole world. So now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening while Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. In our past studies, who's sitting at the gates? Who sits at the gate? Ah. It's the leaders, it's the judges, it's the officials that sit at the gate because that is their place of duty. You know, they judge people's cases, you know, they greet ambassadors and visitors and merchants and, you know, uh, they're the authority of the city. And later on, we'll see kind of a hint uh, where the people accuse him. Oh, you're an outsider and now you're judge? So there's some hints alluding to that possibly Lot was uh, became a judge in Sodom. We know that uh, famine and drought drove him from his Bedouin lifestyle of taking care of livestock and moved him into the city. It wasn't because he was craving carnal desires or natures. He just wanted to protect himself and his family. And Lot believed that through righteous legislation that he could turn the city around uh, and make it a moral, godly city, uh, maybe as it once was years and years ago. Um, so a lot of, a lot gets a bad rap for going to Sodom. Um, and it makes uh, urbanites look bad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a city in and of itself. Uh, it's, it's how you react and what you do and how you participate in the activities of the city, which determines if you're good or not. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we believe that Lot was a judge. So he was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Uh, when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. If he was a judge and he was a leader, why would you bow down to some visitor coming in or some merchant? There was something distinctive about these two individuals that that uh, kind of clued Lot in to their divine origins, perhaps, and if not to their divine origins, that they were uh, some sort of men of authority and importance because you just wouldn't bow down to anybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So, uh, verse 1, he was sitting at the gate. He did this for several reasons. Number one, to imitate Abraham because Abraham uh, basically raised Lot and taught Lot everything that he knew before they parted, before their uh, herdsmen had odds with each other and the land was too small for, to sustain both of them. And so Abraham gave Lot his choice. You know, you pick first, first dibs. I'm the elder, I have the right to first dibs, but I love you, go wherever you want. I'll go in the opposite direction. So we know that in past studies, Abraham always sat at the tent, uh, uh, at the door of his tent, at the gate of his tent, and he looked for passerbys, for people that were traveling the desert so that he could, um, uh, so that he can entertain them, so that he could refresh them, uh, so that he could also witness to them because uh, Abraham was the first monotheist and he wanted to teach people about the one true God. So I think an imitation of the teachings and implementing of the teachings of Abraham that Lot received, that Lot was also sitting at the gates to greet travelers, to be hospitable to travelers, even though it was against the law of Sodom and Gomorrah, according to uh, extra-biblical texts uh, such as Jasher and Jubilees and the Talmud and Legends of the Bible, the Mishnah. But Lot uh, was there to greet uh, uh, travelers. Uh, so he was doing this to be hospitable and to imitate uh, his his uh, uh, mentor, Abraham. Second of all, as I said earlier, he became a judge in that city. 
So 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 kind of flesh this out. And this is my biggest argument against people who want to come against Lot saying he fell, he fell away, he was a backslider, he, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 talks about how um, the wickedness of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah grieved righteous Lot. Peter called him righteous. And if Lot wasn't righteous, Peter wouldn't call him that. And because uh, the letters of Peter are inspired scripture, inspired word of God, we can know for sure and depend on what God's word says, saying that Lot was righteous. He was not a sinner. He was not a backslider. He was there in Sodom in order to do his best to make a difference in the hard situation he found himself in, where the land that he was at no longer was able to sustain him and his flocks. Okay, so he became a judge. The hint became a judge. All right, so we see that he recognized these heavenly beings in verse 1. Uh, when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down his face to the ground. Uh, okay. All right, so verse 2, it says, Then he said, Here, please, my lords. He called them lords. Lord is a, a title of authority. It's a title that uh, he had or that uh, that he gave them out of respect, and he bowed down in obedience to them out of the respect of the authority of their title that he gave them as lords. He knew that they were somehow higher in rank and reputation and authority than even he was, so he bowed down to them. Uh, so it says, verse 2, Then he said, Here, please, my lords, my masters, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can get up early and go on your way. Um, so, uh, verse 3, oh, continuing with verse 2, but they said, no, we will spend the night in the open plaza. Bad idea. Big mistake. Open plaza meant that you were a sitting duck. It meant that you were prey, that you had no friends, you had no defenders, you had nobody to protect you or take care of you or vouch for you of who you were or why you were there. And according to the extra biblical and legendary text concerning Genesis 19, it was illegal for anybody for, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to be hospitable to strangers. They took advantage of strangers, preyed upon strangers, they beat them and, 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 and stole from them, just like uh, the thieves uh, did to the man on, on the uh, uh, road to Jericho. Uh, right where where the man fell among thieves and the good Samaritan helped this guy out. Um, they took advantage of them. So Lot knew that these angelic beings, these masters, these lords, were going to be in big trouble if they stayed in the open plaza. And so he urged them. Um, okay, verse three. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him, and they came into his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked matzot. That's what the uh, Tree of Life version says. Your version may say unleavened bread, and they ate. Why is this important? You know, why is it important to mention what type of bread, what type of meal that Lot served his angelic host? Well, according to the rabbis and sages, through this passage and text and by the words that were used, they believe that this was the 16th of Nisan during what would today be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread right after Passover. So the feasts were established even before they were codified in the law of Moses in Leviticus 23. There was, there was this, uh, you know, passed down from Adam um, all the way to Moses was these feasts. And the feasts up to that point were prophetic. 
looking forward to something. After the time of Moses and the Exodus, it was, you know, you're celebrating something that already occurred. And then even again, Passover was still looking forward to something else. It was remembering the Exodus of the past, but it was looking forward to the redemption of Messiah, uh, the Lamb of God who would take, a, take away the sin of the world. So I find that very interesting that it specifically mentions that it was unleavened bread and that they ate. Because uh, it's not customary to make unleavened bread uh, just, you know, for whatever reason, you know. It, it, so they believe that it was because it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread right after Passover. Okay, verse 4 and 5. They had not yet lain down when the men of the city – oh, let me just stop right there. Not only did he feed them, but it said that he washed their feet. In verse uh, 2, talks about washing feet. That was a, uh, a standing um, unspoken rule in Middle Eastern culture during that time, during that biblical era, that whenever you had guests, you would not only refresh them for food, but you would provide for their animals if they were traveling with camels or livestock or what have you. And um, you, would, you would refresh them by washing their feet. Um, usually you had servants to do this. But it appears by the text that that Lot probably did this himself, which would again bring more clout and authority that he knew that these two men were special, that they were not just regular guys, that they were lords, that they had some sort of power and authority. So he, submitting to their authority, washed their feet in humility and in service. And we see Abraham did the same thing with his visitors that came three days after his circumcision that we talked about last week. Okay, uh, verse 4, they had not yet laid down uh, when the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house from youth to elderly, young and old. I mean, the, it, it just wasn't the old people that were dirty old men. The young people were corrupt as well. And all the people without exception. Now, in the Hebrew, if you read this out from youth to elder and all the people without exception, um, it was basically it was basically saying that you know everybody in the city it doesn't matter if they were rich poor noble peasant young old doesn't matter what their station was in the city or in life all of them were corrupt all of them were perverted all of them were about to participate in this lewd abominable according to God immoral act okay they had not yet lain down when the men of the city the men of Sodom surrounded the house. From youth to elderly, all the people without exception. And they called out to Lot and said to him, Where are where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have relations with them. That's just a polite way of saying we want to rape them. We want to sodomize them. We want to have sex with them. We want to humiliate them. That was the custom of Sodom. You didn't bring guests into your home in Sodom. You, you took advantage of them and sent them on their way, or they would die in your own streets. And so this is what the men of Sodom were doing. So again, they were corrupt, men and old. It was not just homosexuality, but it was pedophilia, because the young were there as well as the old. And if we go back to Genesis 6, we kind of get a, another reason why this was happening. Now, Genesis 6 talks about the sons of God, which always in Scripture represents the angelic hosts, the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, the angels. And it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that they were beautiful, attractive, etc., took, took whomever they want, and they propagated children by them. And they propagated what in this text would say Nephilim, in other translations, giants. 
right? They were hybrids. They were human angelic hybrids. Now, when the pagans worshipped their gods, there was cultic sex magic that took place in the temples among their priests and priestesses. And it was not just regular heterosexual stuff. It was homosexual stuff as well. And they believed that by uh, having sex with the priest and priestess of these cults that in essence that these priests and priestess were were vessels of these gods and you were actually having sex with these gods which harken back to the fallen angels of genesis 6 they wanted strange flesh these men of sodom wanted strange flesh they wanted angel flesh so it looks more like that you know lot and everybody else knew that these were somehow heavenly beings uh, that they were strange flesh, something set them apart that, that let everybody know that these were n not ordinary men. And it's interesting, too, that these angels showed up in the form of men, in the guise of men, which blows away the Western uh, concept that we see in cartoons and in pop culture and art that uh, uh, angels are women. Um, and not only that, it's the living creatures that had wings, not necessarily the angels that had wings. Mentions nothing about wings here in this text. Okay, so uh, continuing on here, verses 6 through 8, it says, but, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. You know, he wanted to protect his, his heavenly visitors. And said, please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. Don't act wickedly. Hang on just a second here, having some technical issues. Sorry about that. Okay, so let's let's start again. It says, but Lot went, uh, went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. Please let me bring them out to you. Do to them whatever is good in your eyes. However, do nothing to these men since they have come under the protection of my roof. Um, so uh, this is problematic for most Westerners. Very problematic for most Westerners. Because... Um, why would this man sacrifice his own flesh and blood and his own daughters to protect these two heavenly beings, these two visitors? Well, according to Middle Eastern culture, which Middle Eastern culture and Western culture are different in so many ways, whenever you, you had a guest or a visitor, you were obligated to protect them with your life at whatever cost. And I can testify to this. When I went to Africa and I was ministering to the Ibu people in Nigeria, it was a very dangerous place for me because I was white uh, and you come from the West. People assume that you're rich. Uh, white people are kidnapped all the time and held for ransom. Uh, so uh, my host was actually he fought in the Biafra Wars. Uh, and but yeah, he wasn't a well man. That particular time I visited him, he was sick. He was dealing with an injury and um, I was somewhere. I had to go to the bathroom out in the bush. And he saw these other men following me, uh, and he knew what was going to go down if they caught me. And so he interceded, and he says, you want him? You have to go through me. He is my guest. You don't know who you're messing with. You don't know who you're dealing with. I think these guys could have took my, my host, but he was willing to sacrifice his life for me and lay down his life for me. He was sick. He was injured. He was in no condition to protect me or fight for me. But yet the Lord brought us through that situation. So 
um, we see that uh, um, you know you protect your guest even at the the sacrificial cost of your own life or the life of that of your family. Um, so it's not that he wanted to hand his daughters over, but he was obligated through the Middle Eastern Code of Hospitality to do so. Now, there's two theories. There's two theories uh, here that these were uh, uh, Lot's only two daughters, or he actually had four daughters. Two were at home, two of which were married. So here's the theory that um, because he goes to speak to his son-in-laws, so uh, when he goes to speak to his son-in-laws, they think, oh, you, you're just joking about all this doom and gloom apocalyptic stuff. So that could indicate that two daughters had already left the home and they were already married. Or it could also mean that he just had two daughters and that these two daughters that he had were betrothed to these men who would become sons-in-laws. But a betrothal, um, somebody that is uh, engaged, uh, a fiance status was as good as a marital status. You just couldn't consummate the marriage through through sex, but you were as good as married because if you were betrothed, you could get a divorce even if you were engaged. And you see this happen in Luke chapter two, where uh, Mary becomes pregnant through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Joseph is thinking, mm, "This is a little shady. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna divorce her, but I'm gonna do it privately because I don't want to put her to public shame." The angel shows up, says, "No, this is all kosher. Marry her." You know, the, the child she has is of the Lord. You know, so how could Joseph divorce her if they haven't consummated the marriage yet? You know, they were betrothed. They were espoused. They were engaged. They were fiancés. But in the Middle Eastern culture at that time, that was as good as being married, right? So those are the two standing theories that either Lot had four daughters or two daughters. If he had four, two of them were already, two of them were already, um, married off and with the sons-in-laws or that they the, he only had two daughters and they were actually just betrothed and not yet the marriage hadn't taken place so they're not yet living with the sons-in-laws okay so those are the two two theories there all right moving on uh verses 10 or 9 through 10 uh, the men of sodom this is their reply get out of the way they said this one came as an outsider and dares to judge there's the hint, folks. There is the hint that Lot was actually had a status of a judge because he. we see the evidence in verse 1. He was sitting at the gate, which only judges do. Um, and if anybody could break the rules or bend the rules, it was Lot. So he brought them into his home to be hospitable, even though it was against the rules for anybody to be hospitable to strangers. And so here they are actually saying, get out of the way, they said. This one came in as an outsider and dares to judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they strongly pressed against the man, Lot, and moved in close to break uh, the door down. But the men reached out their hand, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. Okay, verse 11. Then they struck the men at the doorway of the house with blindness from the youth to the elder, so that they gave up trying to find the doorway. Now this light. This blinding light was further proof that these guests were angelic, were heavenly. Because every time we see a blinding light, what happens? Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was there, uh, his face shone, his, his, his garments became white, and Moses and Elijah showed up right next to him. I mean, he was, he was radiant. Uh, Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai, getting the Torah, getting the law, he come down, it said his face glowed, he was transfigured. Paul, on the road to Damascus, he was literally blinded by the light of God 
And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? You know, so this is a heavenly supernatural light that it, that was emitted by these angels that would that caused blindness so that they were groping and they couldn't even find the door. OK, so moving on to verse 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, who else related to you is still here? A son-in-law, your sons and your daughters, whoever else is related to you in the city, bring them out of this place. So here is that hint that he had four daughters instead of two. But, you know, it really depends on how you take the passage or read the passage. You know, how you interpret it doesn't really have any pending upon doctrine or salvation or anything important in the scripture. So it says, then the men, uh, then the men said to Lot, who else related to you in the, is related to you still here? A son-in-law, your sons, and your daughters, whoever else is related to you in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has come so great before Adonai that Adonai has sent us to destroy it. So these were warring angels. These were destroying angels. This kind of further, you know, my belief that these were uh, Gabriel and Michael. Both of them were messenger angels because that's what the word angel means. It means messenger. That's their first primary uh, uh, job description. But we see Michael warring in the book of Daniel. And so I think that Gabriel and Michael uh, were the were the destroying angels. Other rabbinic sources say that it was, you know, that it was Raphael and that it was Gabriel or Raphael and Michael or Uriel is sometimes thrown in there. But Anyway, those other angels are not in the canonical scriptures. They are in the pseudepigraphal and apocryphal scriptures, as well as the rabbinic literature. Uh, Raphael is the angel of healing. Uriel is another kind of warring angel. Uh, okay. All right. Moving on to verses 15, um, 15, no, 14. Let's go to 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were going to marry his daughters. See, it just depends on how you read it. So this part portion of the scripture, the, the one above would kind of hint that there were other daughters that were married to other men in the city. These particular sons-in-laws that they were talking to, according to the way the rendering of this passage, is they had yet to be married or consummate the marriage with the daughters that were already living in the house uh, with uh, Lot. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for Adonai is about to destroy the city. But in the eyes of the sons, he was like a joker. That's like being in a crowded theater and yelling fire when there's no fire. That's illegal. That's against the law. That's something that's not funnier to joke about. So how could these guys, the sons-in-laws, believe that this was some sort of a joke? It's amazing to me. They were in denial. They were in denial. All right, uh, verse 15. So when the morning dawned, the angels rushed Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else we will you will be swept away with the city's iniquity. When God's judgment falls, we are not, as believers, we are not a portion to God's wrath. God has no intention to destroy his own. But if we refuse to listen, we will be destroyed just like the pagan, just like the rest of them. Now, how can I say this? Just look at the Passover, right? When the angel of death, what was the stipulations? Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house. And when, when I see the blood, the destroying angel will pass over. 
But if you don't have the blood, it doesn't matter if you're Israelite, doesn't matter if you're Egypt, doesn't matter who you are, the firstborn's going to die. You have to have the blood applied. So if you don't follow the instructions that God gives you to escape his wrath, you will be swept away in that wrath. So if Lot and his family lollygagged and stayed behind, they would have been destroyed just like everybody else. So that's why the angels were rushing them, pushing them out the door, saying, come on, we got to go. No time is left. So when the morning dawned, the angels rushed Lot, saying, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be swept away with the city's iniquity. But he hesitated. Maybe he was hoping his son-in-laws would show up. Maybe he was hoping his other daughters would show up giving them at the very last moment time to get out with him. So the men grabbed his hand. Now, these angels weren't just spiritual beings. They took on a physical form that could eat a Passover meal, that could eat unleavened bread, and that could um, grab Lot and his family by the arm and drag them out of the city. So they took on a corporeal form. But he hesitated, so the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and his two daughters' hands because of Adonai's compassion for him, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. So they weren't out of the woods yet. They were out of the city. They were out of ground zero, but they could still be consumed by the, the fire and brimstone and, and the heat that come off of the city being destroyed. So it says in 17, when they brought them outside, one said, flee for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stop anywhere in the surrounding area. Escape to the hills or else you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, no, my Lord, please look, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have magna and and you have magnified your merciful loyalties, which you have shown me by letting me live. But I can't escape to the hill country, for disaster will overtake me and I will die. There's several reasons why Lot was afraid to go to the mountains. Let's explore that just for a minute. So, pagan gods used mountains as their palace, as their temple as their place of worship. On the tops of many mountains are found ruins of pagan temples and pagan sacrificial altars. So a mountain was kind of like, uh, you know, a sacred place. Now, it just wasn't that false gods were stone and wood and silver and gold and idols. They were real. Not that they were real gods. They were just the fallen angels and the demons that were masquerading as gods. They still had power. They still could do things. I mean, heck, you know, the, the, the magicians of Egypt, uh, tit for tat, did the same thing Moses did until Moses uh, took the, the, the sand, the dust, and created lice out of it. They couldn't take something inanimate and bring life to it, and they said, oh, this is the finger of God. So these pagan gods were very real to the people of that day. They were very active in false signs and wonders and miracles. So he's afraid that if he went to any of those mountains that he would invoke the wrath of one of these false gods, these fallen angels or demons, and be harmed. Or he was afraid that God himself would be there because no man can see God and live. Right? I mean, God's mountain was Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And, and, and he told Moses, take your sandals off. You are on holy ground. Verse 20, look, please, the city is close enough to flee to. It is little. It was called Zohar, which means small, which means little. Please let me escape there. Isn't it small? And let me live. So he said to him, behold, 
I will grant your request concerning this matter too, not to demolish the city of which you have spoken. So Zohar, because of Lot, was going to escape this destruction. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed. There were many cities of the plains that were in the direct vicinity um, or satellite hamlets and villages of Sodom and Gomorrah proper, and they were being destroyed as well. So it's almost as if Lot was saying, just spare this one. It's, it's close by, but yet far enough away. So verse 22, hurry, flee to safety there, because I cannot do anything until you arrive there. That is why the town is named Zohar. All right. So um, assured Lot was okay that there was not enough righteous people uh, there to spare the city. All right, so it could also have been that Zohar did have at least 10 righteous people. Remember, that's what Abraham's deal was with God. If you can find 10 righteous, are you going to destroy it? He said, for 10, I won't destroy it. But there wasn't even found 10. Let's say that there was Lot and his wife, his two daughters. Let's say he had two more daughters. That's six. And his two sons-in-laws. That's eight people. How many were in the ark? Eight people. That's how many escaped the flood. That's how many potentially could have escaped. Sodom and Gomorrah. So there wasn't even two more righteous people besides his family in the city of Sodom. So perhaps maybe this is hinting that there was enough to make a minion, enough to make 10 people so that Zohar was spared. Don't know. Just throwing that out there for consideration. All right. Uh, so let's move on to uh, verse 23. The moment the sun rose upon the land, Lot entered Zohar. So they got out like in the middle of the night. They had to flee at night. Um, and Adonai rained sulfur, some say brimstone, same thing, and fire upon uh, Sodom and Gomorrah from Adonai out of the sky. Some people take this literally, that it was just came out of the sky. And if so, uh, there's theories that it could have been an asteroid. It could have been some sort of comet. Uh, others say that it could have been some sort of volcano nearby that erupted and spewed the uh, sulfur and ash uh, upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So it just depends. You know, God can use natural means to perform miracles. Even if it was a volcano, even if it was a meteorite, even if it was a comet, it's still miraculous that it came at that exact moment that God needed it to in order to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Or it could have just been literal and it just kind of appeared out of nowhere because it was divine. So I'll leave that up to you. The moment the sun rose upon the land, Lot entered Zohar, and Adonai rained sulfur and fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah uh, from Adonai out of the sky. So he demolished the cities, plural, and the whole surrounding area. See, I told you it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the city of the plains. All of the, the, the major city was Sodom and Gomorrah. You had these little hamlets, little towns, little suburbs, little burgs, if you will. And, um, you know, they were destroyed too, but Zohar was spared. Because perhaps there might have been at least ten righteous once Lot and his family got there. So he demolished the cities and the whole surrounding areas and all the inhabitants of the city and the vegetation of the ground. So everything was burnt up. Everything was destroyed, and we know that uh, the end result of this fusion of fire and brimstone created a, a sulfur, a salt substance, and so nothing could survive there. Ve vegetation couldn't grow there for many generations after this happened, kind of like Hiroshima uh, or Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl is still uninhabitable. Uh, it will be for another hundred years or so. 
verse 26, but his wife looked behind him. Now, you don't get this in the English. What's the big deal about looking behind? Yeah, you're curious. You want to look at a train wreck. You want a rubberneck, right? It was the intent of her heart. According to the Hebrew, she just didn't look back. The Hebrew word that says look back means that she looked back with longing and desire, like she left something behind, that there was something that she loved that she left behind. Maybe it was the lifestyle of the city. Maybe her heart wasn't totally pure. Whatever it was, it was seen as unrighteous in God's eyes, and he judged her. But his wife looked behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Now Abraham rose early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Adonai, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the entire land of the surrounding area, and saw, behold, the smoke of the land ascending like the smoke of a furnace. What color is the smoke of a furnace? Black. Gray, black smoke. So you know everything was being burnt and destroyed. It just wasn't a campfire where you can give smoke signals. There was stuff burning that was creating a black smoke. So it was as God destroyed the cities of the surrounding area that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had dwelt. So perhaps, perhaps Abraham was like, I wonder if Lot's okay. I wonder if he got out in time. Now, let's move on. Um, let's move on. All right. Now, I want you to pay particular attention to what I'm about to read because this is very controversial. Many of you may have not have heard this, so I just want to bring this up. So, beginning with verse 30. Um, with verse 30. Then Lot went up from Zohar and dwelt on the mountain. Something overcame his fear. He thought perhaps, you know what? Zohar is really not much better than Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps God is going to end up judging Zohar. I better get out of here before this place is destroyed. So the fear of being destroyed in the city overcame his fear of living in the mountains. So Lot went up from Zohar and dwelt on the mountain, his two daughters with him, because he was afraid to dwell in Zohar. So he lived in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now this is sad. Um, because this is where Lot's daughters uh, have incestual relations with their father and produce sons. And they became one of the most wicked nations and enemies of Israel, uh, Moab and Ammon. Uh, so it says, verse 31, Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to come to us as is custom of the whole land. Now. A lot of people think Lot's daughters wicked. Maybe they were influenced too much by Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were willing to have sex with their father. No, I don't think they wanted to do this. I think they felt obligated to do this. Because if you read the extra-biblical works uh, that, was, that was available to the first century Jewish people and the first century believers, such as J Jasher and Jubilees uh, and other rabbinic texts, you get the impression that they literally thought they were the last people on earth, and it was up to them to repopulate the earth. And the only man left was their father. So they had no choice but to have ancestral relation if uh, they were to repopulate the earth. Now, Jasher, let me see if I can find that here. Jasher, 1957, says, The daughters thought that they were the only ones left on earth and had to replenish the earth. So it's not like they were wicked and wanted to get it on with their dad. You know, that's pretty disgusting and gross. They felt like they had to or there'd be, you know, the earth would just cease to exist. 
So the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land, no man on earth, if you will, to come out to us as the custom of the whole land, of the whole earth. Sometimes that word I hear is, that word land is used interchangeably with earth. So that might uh, give a, a greater hint that, um, uh, you know, that, that they thought they were the only ones left. Come on, let's make our father drink. The only way that, you know, our father's going to refuse to have sex with us, and we can't blame him because it's wicked, it's evil. The only way we're going to be able to do it is if we get him so drunk he doesn't even know what's going on. So it says, come on, let us uh, make our father drink wine so that we can lie with him and keep the seed from our father alive. So they made their father drink wine uh, that night, and the firstborn came and laid down with their father, yet he did not know that she lay down and got up. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, See, I slept with my father last night. Let's make him drink wine tonight as well. Come on, sleep with him so that we can keep seed of our father alive. So they made their father drink wine that night as well, and the younger got up and lay down with him, and he did not know when she lay down when she got up. He was plastered. He had no idea he had sex with his daughters. No idea until three months later he noticed they were pregnant. Verse 36, so Lot's two daughters became pregnant by their father. Then the firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. The younger also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ammi. Um, he is the ancestor of the sons of Ammon to this day. Now, another reason that the daughters probably thought it was the end of the world. Uh, they couldn't see beyond the city of the plain. They thought maybe that, you know, since they left Zohar, Zohar was wicked and it was destroyed too. They thought that they had escaped the uh, Armageddon, the apocalypse. Second Peter 3, 10 through 12, talks about how at the end of days, uh, when the earth is, it, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, according to the Torah, if you can't, if something can't be cleansed twice by water, it has to be cleansed by fire a third time. So we see this in the laws of leprosy and the laws of Zaretz when things become moldy or, you know, mildewed. Uh, you try to cleanse it twice, and if it doesn't work, you have to burn it. You have to burn it with fire. Same thing with the earth. Uh, in, in, in the earlier classes, we learned that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. We know that God doesn't create void. He doesn't create chaos. He doesn't create destruction. So something happened that destroyed the first earth, the pre-edemic earth. Because it said water was up on the face of the deep. It was cleansed by water the first time. The second time the earth was cleansed by water was Noah's flood. So Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, that the elements will melt with a fervent heat. That the earth is going to be cleansed a third time. And when it does, it's going to be cleansed with a, uh, a fervent heat. This follows the Levitical laws. God keeps his own laws. So if God cleansed the earth twice by water, if the pre-edemic earth is true, and Noah's flood, then we can expect Peter's words to come to pass that the new heaven and new earth will come out of a furnace, will come out of a fire. Uh, okay, so I see we have some questions here on, on our live feed, so I want to kind of read those and see if I can answer those, not guaranteeing I can. Uh, so good morning, Gary. Good morning, Trixie. Good morning, uh, uh, Greg. Um, all right, so it says... Have you heard the sulfur came before the fire, so the residents choked on poison before fire rained? That's very possible. Uh, that's very possible. Uh, I don't know. I have heard that, but I don't know how true that is. So even in his wrath, they could have had merciful deaths. Very true. 
very true. They could have passed out and, and, and choked on like some sort of carbon monoxide, sulfur kind of, you know, the smoke inhalation uh, before they were actually burned up. Don't know if that's true. That's a really interesting theory. And that would testify to God's mercy that even wicked people experience God's mercy. Now, this kind of begs the question a lot of people ask, why does God let the wicked live? Why does God let wicked prosper? Even the prophets of old recorded these very words, because God is merciful. He knows that if a righteous person dies, no big deal. They're going to go to heaven. They're going to be with him. But if a wicked person dies, they're going to be lost, burning in hell for all eternity. So God in his mercy allows the wicked to prosper so that they may, may see one day, hey, God loves me anyway. I don't deserve this, but God allowed me to have this. And they would see God's mercy and say, man, I better repent because... So God gives them as much chance as possible to repent. That's why he lets some wicked people live and survive and live long and prosper. Boy, I just quoted Trek and didn't mean to. <laughs> um, so that they will have as many chances as they can to receive him before they die so that they won't have to go to a devil's hell because the scriptures say that the hell was made for the devil and his angels. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he's given the wicked as many chances as possible. Again, if the, if the righteous die, Big deal. They get promoted. They get to go to heaven. And Paul says, you know what? I want to go to heaven, but I know that staying here is more profitable for you. But, oh, I'm so homesick. I want to go home. So anyway, thanks, guys, so much for joining me for the Sunday school class. Uh, it should be up later on YouTube in the week. Uh, please join me again here in a half an hour for our Sunday morning sermon, which is going to be entitled, um, How Long, O Lord? So thanks so much for joining me. Make sure you get your family and friends to tune in a half hour from now, and we'll have the Sunday morning service. Love you guys. God bless. Shalom.